For question two on our test, now we have the answer is still E, but this time to prove C is more research is needed and D is it depends. And you have to show your work for how you prove it. Welcome to Therapist in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner. Welcome back for part two of our podcast on the adolescent female athlete slash the adolescent athlete in general. In part one, for those that missed it first, go listen to it, especially talking about some of the prepubescent components, talking about helping with movement, understanding where your body is in space, becoming more comfortable with those theories and the social aspects of getting your kids involved in sports at a young age and particularly some of the challenges that your, your female athletes are going to be dealing with in this. And to kind of remind back what Dan uh, discussed a little bit earlier was there's some good research behind the idea that at the younger ages, plyometric body weight type training is beneficial. As you get older and more mature, and I'm saying older on the spectrum of children, of course, so looking at puberty and, and later within puberty, <laughs> right? Doing resistance training is beneficial. But it's time to talk about what does that look like for our adolescent athletes? What is resistance training? What do we need to do to help them be successful? So Dr. Dahl, would you like to expand upon what this looks like for those athletes? I'd be happy to. I'd like to ask a question first. At what age does resistance training no longer become a good thing, like when we're older? Um, actually, I would say never, correct, uh, because of the need to stimulate type 2 muscle fibers, which we know, uh, shout out to Josh Davis, uh, assists with fall reduction strategies because that's going to help create and maintain dynamic balance. So while our focus today will be on prepubescent, pubescent resistance training, uh, the important thing to consider as part of the reason that this is important at all is because developing those patterns and maintaining it through our life is going to be overall important to our health. And that starts at, at very young ages. So uh, we should be doing, again, things that are always appropriate for the age that we're looking at. And when we're talking about when we're talking about puberty, we've had, or pre-puberty, -pu pre we've had a lot of debates over time about whether it is safe and whether it's beneficial to do resistance training. Resistance training should be thought of not as Olympic weightlifting and major one rep max lifts, especially for our children and adolescents. But again, first those movement patterns, and once we have um, learned those move movement patterns well, now we can start to load them. And we should be doing this in safe ways, so kids that don't have the focus or ability to make sure they're not dropping things on their own toes yet, probably shouldn't be dealing with free weights, but we can talk about bands and body weight and how we can add to body weight as well. Uh, we should be looking at making sure technique is always appropriate with whatever weight we have on board. And for the most part, there's no cut and dry, it has to be this many uh, reps, but if our kids can do a good 10, 12, 14, 15 reps with good technique at whatever weight we're doing, then the overall 
gains from doing resistance training are going to far outweigh any risks, regardless of whether growth plates are opened or closed, and regardless of whether we are in peak puberty changes and hormonal changes or later. So you, you bring up some good things there because I, I feel like an even looking at different components of the literature and research, some of it is going back to the introduction of it depends or more research is needed. But I, I think that that's one of the things out there that you've kind of spoke about, about the growth plates and the risks associated with the growth plate. So can you talk a little bit about what you see in your practice is something where you may pull back on resistance training um, and, and the rationale of why you would pull somebody back on resistance training, you know, in that pre-pubescent or pubescent age range because of different factors. Mm -hmm. In full puberty, we have a very high peak in how quickly we are, are changing our size, both in the composite of our body as well as the length of our body and body weight. So body weight, body fat percentage, and height. However, any kiddo who is going through any sort of growth spurt, this is going to apply to, although hormones may make it both faster and more important. So when we are going through really big changes in size, then we generally have a difference in the rate of growth between bones and muscles and tendons. And because of that, we do have an increased risk of some overuse or especially apophysitis. So the growth plate where a tendon attaches to a bone can get irritated because our tendons and our muscles tend to be really flexible or really tight at those ages. And we have to we have to work through those for sure. And so at those times, we need to make sure that we are especially not overloading. And as mentioned in part one, those might be times that we change range of motion a little bit or change exactly what the exercises are, but we can absolutely still be doing these things. Sarah, you know, we're talking a little bit about some of the changes with puberty. Can you discuss some of the differences between males and females when it comes to muscle mass and body fat that happens as puberty is occurring and how that's going to impact the athlete's success? Yes. So it's widely known that when males and females go through puberty, their changes in their body are of different composition. You know, maybe they're both having a comparable height growth spurt, but females are going to put on proportionately less lean mass, muscle mass, than their male counterparts. And that will re result in decreased torque output. It will give them some of that explanation for some of the proprioceptive challenges that they have that are different than their male counterparts. And just general decreased absolute strength and ability to control their body. So you might have a puberty comparable male versus female, but the female is going to have disproportionately less muscle mass and less ability to control their body in space, just naturally given on biological factors. I think the last I saw, I believe it stated that females tend to put on 50 to 75% of the lean muscle mass that a male would put on over the time of puberty. Obviously, it's a good range, but just give some perspective. Like you said, there's a big difference there. And then proportionally, it just kind of reinforces like the importance of let's do strength training with our girls and our female athletes to help mitigate some of these risks that you are pointing to. 
Also important, I'm kind of curious, Dr. Dalt, what are your thoughts on some of the age ranges that we're talking about when it comes to puberty? Because 15-year-old boy, 15-year-old girl, well, potentially could be outliers and relatively the same. What does it look like in puberty for us to understand when we can start looking at loading to a more progressive degree? Absolutely widely variable. Um, <laughs> and it is somewhat continually changing, uh, but ultimately, there, there's no hard and fast cutoff. You are looking generally starting around 11 for girls, ending around 14, 15, and for males starting around 12 on the early end, ending around 16 for true peak puberty uh, on the late end. Uh, and in, in true clinical fashion, it should be determined based on developmental, uh, development of sex characteristics. So breast development, testicle development, and pubic hair development, how those things change over time. And then, of course, females have the added ease of knowing when they're menstruating. So in that situation, you know, from your professional experience, like how are you coaching your, your patients and their parents on managing of of workload and strategies to help keep them still active and safe as they're, as they're navigating those changes. The biggest thing I would say as far as starting a true resistance program is that we have an athlete of whatever kind, whatever they're participating, whatever their physical activity is, that they have, they have good skill development for what they're doing and that they have adequate time put into that to make sure that we're moving correctly and and doing things in a safe way, whether it's on the field, on the court, on in the dance studio, whatever. We have to supplement on top of that, not take away from that when we add resistance training. So this can really be done at essentially any age, but to make sure that our kids have the focus and and understanding and ability to follow directions, we're probably looking at, at that 10, 11, 12 year old. And again, boys not only develop physically slower than girls in this respect, but also uh, mentally and uh, responsibility wise. So this might be a cons an individual consideration across the board. But again, as long as we have good technique and we are starting with body weight and adding maybe five to 10%, probably 10% at a time, uh, and maintaining good technique, we know that, again, gains much bigger, so better bone mass density because we're loading those bones, which is gonna be very important for especially girls long-term because we lay down most of that bone when we're going through peak puberty and it will carry us through the rest of our lives. And then... Metabolic rate. Increased metabolic rate. Increased metabolic rate, absolutely. And again, just this is the time our 8 to 12-year-olds, depending if females versus males, this is the time when we should be learning how to train. This is the time when we need to learn how we are going to be moving for the rest of our lives. And then particularly as we get into that puberty, that puberty group, then, then that's when we're developing those habits that we're going to have the rest of our life. And that's probably the most important thing that we're going to look at. The late mental development makes sense. Dan still does not follow instructions. Yep. That's a def uh, definite and definitive <laughs> component. 
Venturing a little bit into the definitely more research is needed side, there's variance as far as what's the frequency of training. No significant conclusion there, but I'm curious everyone's thoughts. What are your recommendations for the frequency of resistance training with our adolescent female athletes? Can I answer? What, what, was, was, was it D on this on podcast? On this podcast, it, it is D. D. Yes, it correct. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it comes down to really where are they in season or, you know, performance schedule, depending, you know, if you're talking an artistic athlete and what's the load and the intensity of said practice, you know, in, in the meta-analysis that Dr. Dalt sent to us, you know, it, while again, a lot more research is needing, needed, they were trying to say that in their research, they looked at two or three times a week in, in a few of the studies and a few of the studies didn't even mention the frequency or the duration that they were doing these training sessions, which was a little interesting from a, from a research standpoint that they were able to get it published, not having those factors mentioned in their studies. Uh, but that's a completely other, another situation. I, I mean, I think it comes down to really what's the goal of the session and what's the intensity level of the session? Because if you're pushing somebody with a really high CNS demand, they need to have adequate time for their system to recover. But the thing that we oftentimes forget, and, and this was a great discussion we had at the Sports Institute a, a few weeks ago, is what are their other life demands? If it is a high school athlete and we are pushing them in the resistance training realm aggressively in the middle of a high stress testing situation or they're getting ready for ACT prep or SAT prep or whatever standardized tests they have and they're going through a significant amount of mental stress and then that impacts their ability to get adequate rest which impacts their recovery. Now we're looking at so many other factors that will alter the frequency and that's our responsibility in the healthcare world to educate ourselves to have an understanding with the athlete, with the parents with the strength coaches, with the athletic trainers who are looking at those athletes at the end of a school day going, yeah, something's not right today. And us working together as a care collaborative team to really look at them. So, I mean, really that's where it comes down to, it depends because it's so variable. You may have something planned in a day and you get outside and the kids are fried and it's already 95 degrees. You can tell that five of the kids aren't very well hydrated. Well, I have to pivot and I have to, I have to recognize that and make significant modifications on that day based on what I see out of the kids, regardless of what I think they can do or should do. I think just one thing I would add too, and since we're talking about like the differences between boys and girls, it'd be like, how well are the athletes fueled? Mm -hmm. I mean, high school girls have some pretty dysfunctional eating patterns and males can too, especially Absolutely. when their bodies are changing really rapidly. And so in addition to like what's going on in their life from activity standpoint, but also are they adequately fueling themselves and, you know, having those hormonal things that can come into play with that as well. well I think that's huge because the fuel component, they think they're ingesting enough calories and they really aren't, or they're not ingesting the right type of calories or at the right time. And so now they have a performance issue because they ingest those calories too close to practice time and then they can't practice at the level or they don't put enough fuel in afterwards to assist with recovery based on whatever that may be. And, and we haven't even touched on the hydration component here living in the desert, which is another massively important component. Uh, but yeah, you're right. That the fuel side is vitally important. 
when you touch on something that's such, like you said, important, keep repeating the same word Dan's using. Specifically important? Specifically, specifically important. <laughs> In particular, we talked a little bit about some of the fears that have come from before. And there is some research that has shown, especially like with dancers and athletes of the artistic arts, where there has been issues with growth plate closures or stunted growth. And I say, well, we showed that, so why did it happen? Most experts look back and say exactly what we just touched on, Sarah. When you look at the prevalence of nutritional deficits that are happening with, I mean, many, if not all, female athlete sports, but particularly those sports where appearance plays such a large role frequently, you say, well, yeah, of course, they don't have the nutritional needs they need to develop. Of course, there's going to be stunted growth. Of course, there's going to be challenges with the growth plate components of things and every number of aspects that happen. So oftentimes, we look back and said, oh, you know, we, we may have had a fear that we said, oh, it must be the resistance. And we missed what was the true challenge there. This is a huge, huge piece of the equation. The rest, the, the readiness, you know, Brett Fisher has talked many times about the need for professional athletes where he's tailored down programs of people who are fully grown, fully trained, elite level professional athletes who he didn't want to put at risk for injury because he recognized they were there and good, but you could feel weren't at their peak optimal performance for that actual day. In an interesting turn of needs more research events, <laughs> this is the one area that I can pretty definitively say that we have significantly more research on nutrition in female athletes and what that means. Because again, we have an, an outside marker, that was in quotes, outside marker, that uh, of menstruation that tells us too late, but it tells us that something's wrong. Um, as opposed to our male athletes who obviously have their own cycle of hormones, but do not have any external sign of this. And as such, we have been lacking on paying attention to their nutrition issues because it is not just the female athlete who is in a subjective performance-based activity sport that has intentional or unintentional energy deficits from their nutrition versus what their output is in, in sport and just daily life. To hop back on the it depends train, obviously recommendations are going to be depending upon the sport you're talking about. Nutritional needs are going to vary greatly. If you think about like cross country versus say a football player just based on what's there, but without even getting to athletes, what are some of the general recommendations just for growing children as far as like sleep, nutrition, just to think about a baseline, what are some things we're supposed to look at for kids? Well, the only one, <laughs> we're kind of looking around each other. The one I'm going to go to is sleep because I know the study uh, at a University of Arizona, shout out to Dr. Michael uh, for sending that to us before it was actually published a, a few years ago. But it, it really shows that athletes who don't get greater than 8.1 hours of sleep are at almost a two times greater risk of injury. I think that that's something that crucially we all have to know and understand, especially those of us that are frequently treating youth athletes or have children. That's also probably directly related to academic performance and things like that. You know, kind of going back to your question on on, on frequency of, of resistance training. You know, I said it really it, it really depends, but in the off season, I think there's a huge opportunity based on again the ability that neural adaptation is going to occur in all kids regardless if they are 
prepubescent or they are pubescent, there's going to be a significant increase in quote unquote strength and control just from the neural stimulation. And there will also be some sort of muscle hypertrophy, which is also important because it is, it is huge in injury reduction. And then during the season, what can you do to maintain that level so that they can stay performing at the level they need to during the demands of, of in season with sport or sorry, with practice and with game competition. Um, but as far as the nutritional side to answer your most recent question, I don't know the demands other than, you know, if they have some sort of fitness tracking device that is telling them roughly how many calories they are burning. Obviously you have to have more calories in than calories out or very close to that just to make sure you don't have energy deficiency. This is going to cross over into a saying that anybody has talked to me about weight management has heard. It is as easy as calories in versus calories out. Calories in, it's a complicated equation on what our body demands of us as far as cravings and, and what we want depending on our activity level versus what our recent calorie intake has been. But it is a very complicated and and, and almost impossible to navigate equation about what calories out are. And, and that's going to be highly individualized, a significant genetic component, um, not just related to activity. So uh, there's, while there is basic nutritional, well-balanced, high in fruits and veggies, making sure we're getting adequate protein, which does not have to be animal sourced necessarily, but should be varied regardless of what source it's from. And our uh, micronutrient intake should also be. So meeting macronutrients, meeting micronutrients, and having a wide variety of different colors in our diet to make sure that we're getting a lot of micronutrients. And I think, and you both gave great answers. I really feel like a true like instructor providing a test here, because I think I give you a question that doesn't have a good definitive answer, and like yes or no. You told me to prove it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> prove your work, yes or no. But it is important because it's also important to remember, remember not to fixate on those things, right? It's way too easy to get on the fixation road of that. And like Dr. Dalt's saying, like the idea, of the equation is almost unfindable based on the number of variables that are going to come into the equation and play. It's just a good reminder when you're working with these athletes. Think about what their day can look like. You've talked about the social stresses. I, from some of the high school athletes we see, they have how many hours of homework now a days, Dan? I mean, it's crazy how much homework they have. Then if I think about practice after schools that I had, conditions after school that I had, where you're fitting all this into the day, and then finding room for eight hours, and I've seen some kids that easily need up to 10 hours of sleep with different components. How are you fitting in a 24-hour day the meals, the school, the training, the life, the ability to interact with your friends, the sleep patterns you need. It's just keeping these things in mind. What does their day look like? Are they getting the appropriate nutrition? Are they flying through trying to crank out some of their homework over lunch and not getting a good meal to be eaten? Some of the things that Sarah, you kind of mentioned, it, and Dan, you'd mentioned in, in some of the sports topics we've had, all these things play a role and play an equation. So it's not something to be fixated upon, as you all touched on very nicely, but something to kind of keep in mind for your athlete to not overwhelm them, but help them be successful and be intelligent to what part of the season it is for them as well. Particularly for our growing athletes, although this is definitely something that can be true at, at any stage of an athletic career, especially if we're talking about like you know, small league baseball where we don't get a good paycheck. We also have to consider food availability 
and sourcing, but particularly for our kids who don't have anything themselves to to bring to that equation. So as the adults in the room, we need to be making sure we're considering what socioeconomic status looks like and how those things can change and, and the discomfort with sharing that information. Something that I would say is data-based is that we can look at specific risk factors and indications that we might be heading towards nutrition deficiencies so red s or female athlete triad and paying attention checking in with our athletes about that so we have an idea if wherever their nutrition is is adequate or might not be adequate so we can look into it further something that is not probably data proven at this point or at least i haven't found it would be part of what we're talking about here all of those stressors how they all add up we haven't said the thing we're talking about, but overtraining syndrome in particular, or even overreaching. Obviously, we want to catch our athletes when they're overreaching so that we can reverse that much easier. So probably one of the things we absolutely need to pay attention to besides technique and besides looking at the, the numbers that we're loading or the frequency that we're loading is what the perceived exertion is. Because if we teach our, our athletes how to judge how hard it is for them to do whatever they're doing, no matter what it looked like yesterday versus what it looks like today, if we watch where their perceived exertion level is, we can get an idea of when we're approaching too much. And that might be the most important thing we can teach them, again, for later in life as well. So you kind of brought up the idea of some of the overuse injuries, overutilization, which is a huge topic in youth sports. And I don't want to go too far down that line. And I do want to put a potential trigger warning out there because there are going to be a lot of potentially challenging topics that exist there. But when we look at the, the adolescent athlete, how does cross-training play a role? And what should that look like to help them be successful with their sport? So cross-training comes down to that we are training multiple different skills, that we are appropriately training for wherever that particular athlete is, all the different parts of their body, and more than likely, not just specific physical features of that either, so mental training, what have you. Um, when we talk about sports specialization, particularly right now, it has a, a big red flag associated with it, right? We do it too young, it increases the rates of burnout, it increases the risk of overuse injury. But we really need to take a look at the entire culture, the entire competitive nature of how we are Pushing, again, I said this earlier, our, our youth athletes are not just little adults, but we're putting them in leagues that treat them like little adults. And so more than likely, a good portion of the sports specialization risk is because, not to, not to hit on baseball and pick it out, but obviously Tommy Johns and UCL injuries is where a lot of this started. Pitch counts are important, what have you, but but how are we gonna keep track of pitch counts and throw counts for our athletes who are playing six baseball games every weekend? And when do they learn the skills to get them through that? 
how much practice time do they have? And, and if we're only focused on winning those tournaments, how are we developing all of our athletes? Or are we just putting more and more pressure on our, our top skill levels already? And is that why sports specialization burns out some kids and makes them less likely to succeed? Because we're focusing on the wrong things in that one sport. So sports specialization in and of itself doesn't have to be a bad thing as long as we take the components of cross-training and making sure that we're making strong, pliable athletes across the board. Well, and I love that you talk about that. It's such a good good component. Like you said, there's a lot more that goes into it, but getting that overall well-rounded athlete is so essential. And you know, Dan, we'll do a pop quiz for you. What region of America, because I know you know this question and answer, what region of America produces the most number of professional baseball pitchers? That would be the upper Midwest region of the United States. It's one of my favorite facts from Brett. It was one of those is like, that doesn't make sense. I was thinking, you know, California, Texas, South, like all these baseball hotbeds. And it comes down to the good old, where are you forced to cross train? If you live in Michigan, sorry for those in Michigan. I don't want to be offensive to you. You can't pitch at certain times of the year unless there's some indoor baseball stadium that I am not aware of that you have access to at every age. You are forced to do these things. You're forced to cross train and train other components of the skills. You could be baseball focused, as Dr. Dalt said, without having to be baseball playing at all points in time, as opposed to here in Arizona, where you could literally go from club team to high school team, or if you're not in high school, there's enough club teams to go year round here to continue training, to do special leagues, to do prep things. There's You could go without ever stopping, giving yourself the appropriate break and rest. So again, to go too far down that road, but important pieces of the equation to keep in mind. Well, and one of the things where my head goes on that is developing a well-rounded athlete. And I think that's crucially important for both females and male athletes. And one of the things we know about developing a well-rounded athlete is appropriate levels of resistance training, appropriate levels of plyometric training, appropriate levels of cardiovascular training, appropriate levels of flexibility training, appropriate levels of recovery, nutrition, you know, like that, that traditional quote unquote health side of it. Those are all crucially important things that I, I consider part of cross training. The other thing, as, as we looked at some of the literature that was out there, a couple of meta-analyses looking at the American Academy of Pediatrics is, is, is in some of these research studies when they're trying to see like how did, did a resistance training program work they're so broad, which I understand from a research standpoint, we have to have. But one of my challenges out there to our, to our listeners, to our physical therapists, our athletic trainers, our strength coaches is, is really when you get a group of, of individuals at the beginning of an off season is create a battery of pre-test measures that are, that, that have some sort of validity out in the, in the research that you can find an age match norm for both males and females. Because then what you can do is you can say, oh, I have five girls and I have five boys in my, in my, in my training group. And some of them are really good at straight line speed and acceleration. And some of them are really good at cutting and agility work. Great, as I build out my program, I wanna make both of those athletes more well-rounded. And, but I can not just have this generalized program that we see and I'm not, meaning any disrespect here where the football team goes in to lift at seven o'clock in the morning and they all do the exact same lifting program. 
the wide receivers are doing the exact same thing as the offensive linemen. And we know that those two groups require different skills to do those things. A, a wide receiver is not going to push an, around another couple hundred pound individual with his hands in a relative hand-to-hand -hand fighting combat in the trenches like an offensive lineman is. If they do, something has gone massively wrong on the play. And the guard <laughs> right. didn't pull, and it's, right. it's, it's that, abort mission. But a lot, you know, and I know that that takes a lot of extra planning, and it, but it goes back to what Dr. Dalt said, is if we're training them the movement literacy and ensuring that they're safe to do those loads, now we can get into some of that specialized you know, component of their sport that's going to be more applicable to what they're doing on the field, on the pitch, in the alley, you know, on the mat, whatever it is, but utilizing some, some specific youth to youth athlete to athlete pre and post test measures, not just, Oh, you can bench press more now or not. You can, you can squat more, but is that correlating to what is required for their task, which all of our tasks out there, sports out there require a level of endurance, power, strength, range of motion, flexibility, agility. Like there's a certain level that is required. And I feel like even in looking in the literature, all of that is not all that. A lot of times it's missing or it's, oh, there's one test. Great. There's one test, but that only looked at straight ahead acceleration, a 40 yard dash. Well, there's so much more in sport than just a 40 yard dash. So I know it's a little bit on the sports specialization side, but I think it, it can play into the cross-training route of how do we utilize both of those components in cross-training in the off-season to help them become a better, more well-rounded athlete. So you both touched on a lot of really important things. And, and Dan, you know, I, I like to talk about some of the sports specificity, and it kind of harkens back nicely to what Dr. Galt was talking about on our previous podcast, especially starting with just some sports skill and just general movement skill early and continuing to remember the importance of those things. And I want to make sure everyone kind of hears and thinks about too, this varies so greatly kid to kid. And when I talk to some of my, my favorite exercise prescribers, strength coaches, you know, K2, Chip, Charleston, people like that, they do such a great job of varying the programs of their athletes, athletes of all ages. This is both fully grown adults and children for, their, for going through their athletic performance and saying, they're always having bits and pieces of the equation that is there. They're not ignoring anything, but they're varying what they're doing and they're changing what they're doing to help the individual be successful and look at all pieces of the equation. And I can't help but, like Dan, you mentioned very nicely some of the football athletes all doing the same lifting program. I see a lot of times where people want to go through and they get a bit too tunnel visioned on certain programs. So think like a gymnast that will have a strength program that is appropriate for their sport but they forget the large amplitude of motion that a gymnast has to be able to go through. And not that that means you need to find a way to load them at these crazy extreme ranges. You just have to make sure that if you're working on something to improve, say, their jump height and working on their quads, you're also not forgetting during these components of things, you're intermixing the entirety of the skill they might need. And that still doesn't have to be the literal skill. The skill can be saying, what are the ranges of motion? What are the demands on this individual? What are they needing to do so they don't lose that? Otherwise, you strengthen a certain range, you lose others, and suddenly you can't control that range. And if we have a gymnast who can't control end ranges, they're not going to be successful. So it's easy to become tunnel vision with these things. and hard to sometimes remember the difference of it and also talking a little bit behind the scenes with things in the server up a nice point, but it does again vary athlete to athlete. And I see a lot of individuals that are like, oh, 
I want to do what insert great athlete A did here. This amazing athlete that was came up and you know Serena Williams, professional tennis player at a young age and amazingly successful. I want to follow what she did. It's like, well, she can be an amazing inspiration and has been to many, many individuals. But A, you're not Serena. I hate to break this to you. <laughs> She's got a lot of impressive natural gifts there and she worked her butt off with this. So you can take a lot of that precedence to help you with the, the work hard equation component, go to Dan's effort piece. We have to find what's right for you, and that's going to vary greatly. That doesn't mean you are not going to be great. You just have to find what your needs are to help you be successful and not burn yourself out uh, as the equation goes forward. Dr. Dahl, what are some of your important takeaways for the listeners? Well, it depends. <laughs> <laughs> Standard. Wait, is that D? <laughs> I, I mean, it depends. We need more research. I would say some of the things that we absolutely need to consider is that it absolutely depends on the athlete in front of you that we, particularly when we're talking about our female athletes, and you mentioned gymnastics, there used to be a particular body type that we look for in gymnastics, and, and now Simone Biles has, has totally changed that up. And, and as much as I try to avoid the image aspect of this, uh, you know, strong is beautiful, and there can be some bulk to that, and that doesn't have to be a bad thing, and that's true for females and male, males. There is too much bulk for, for some sports, for some positions, for some bodies. Some frames are just not going to manage that bulk well, or trying to hit a certain weight is going to be metabolically and otherwise unhealthy for that athlete. So so there shouldn't be one Tiger Woods, Simone Biles, Venus Williams, anybody to, to model after because we all are going to fit into it in different ways and, and we can all play different sports, different positions in different ways and, and utilize skill sets to still do really amazing things. We need to change the way that we both approach and teach resistance training because even as we come back to the weight room for a high school football team and we're just thinking about bars and squats and dumbbells and things like that, that's not the resistance training, the only resistance training we're talking about. One of the most successful resistance training programs we have with really great data outcomes is, is protecting shoulders in major league baseball players with a simple band resistance training exercise program for rotator cuff because that increased blood flow helps to promote healing and means that we have more longevity regardless of strength they're such small small, small muscles although strength also important and and that brings us back to being too metric driven as well focusing on any one particular part of this what a one rep max is what and even what the definition of what training to failure is like there's so much delicacy in these things that that we need to make sure that we're we're being consistent in teaching these things across the board so our pre-pubertal and those athletes going through puberty that are not fully developed, that growth plates are not closed, they probably don't need to be training to failure, meaning I just cannot do this anymore. They, if we are training them to failure, they need to be training to failure with a weight that they can maintain proper technique with, and failure is when proper technique is no longer there. 
end stop, hard stop. But this is all very specific to, to each individual person. It needs to be considered, whether it's a female or a male, and, and how it fits into what they want to do, not just today, not just tomorrow, not just next year, but also for the rest of their life. And then we also need to make sure that we, we consider how much we are placing an emphasis, emphasis on, not just the metrics of what strength is, what, what any of those things are, but also the wins loss column. We should still be teaching our growing kids that doing these things are inherently fun and not just about what the scoreboard looks like at the end of the day. And maybe even, another trigger warning, maybe even removing some of those scoreboards from what they're doing in order to promote that long-term health and longevity in being an active individual. Otherwise, that is where we get burnout. I love it. And thank you to all of you for some awesome information. Dr. Ald, especially, thank you so much for joining us and giving us all of your amazing knowledge and wisdom. And we did start this previous podcast with the thought of a paradigm shift. So I do want to leave one last thought out there, one last comment of knowledge from Dr. Dalt by asking you, when do you want to see this start? When does this start for the individual, the kid going through? And what does that paradigm shift look like to finish? It depends. Ultimately, it should be in the appropriate ways as early as possible. Awesome. Well, thank you all. And as always, if anyone has any questions or comments, please reach out to us at the Therapist in Motion at SpoonerPT.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Please hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app.